fun to see these little ones learning the great truths of God. Amen? At one point, we were there. And I'm thankful for the many that have invested into my life and the many that are invested into my kids' lives. Well, this morning, let me encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word or or open or turn on your Bible and turn with me um, to John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4. If you have the, one of the Bibles that we provide, it's on page 888. John chapter 4. As a child, and I, I was honest as I shared with them, that Christmas is probably one of my favorite times of year. I have so many great memories of, of times that, and experiences with my family um, and it was always filled with anticipation. Um, I don't know what it's like in your home. And, um, you know, we get that. I mean, Christmas is about Christ. But, man, my wife desires to have a, a Christmas tree up almost, you know, Halloween's turning the corner. And it's like, man, it's time to get that. Cr- not that early. I'm joking a little bit. But she loves to have it up. But we'll travel. Today we'll, we'll, we'll hop in our van and we'll go spend um, some time with our family in North and South Carolina. So we don't, we don't get to enjoy a Christmas tree up here long. So it's like, man, let's get it up a little early because we usually hit the road and, and we're not here for Christmas. And so what it does is it builds that anticipation. So as we're putting out the tree and we're pulling out some of the cool ornaments, uh, one of the favorite ornaments uh, of my kids, and they, I think they've packed it to take with us on vacation, is a little birthday cake and you program what day it is, and, it, and they'll look at it, and it tells them how many days till Christmas. It actually does days, hours, and minutes. Like, it is, it's the real deal. It's the real deal countdown to Christmas. And so, uh, I mean, they're excited. They're thrilled. It's this anticipation that they can't wait till it, till it comes. I, you know, it's, I, it's, I guess it's similar to the anticipation to the Star Wars movie this past week. I don't know. Did anybody go see that? Do we have any star? Okay, we do have a few. Like, I don't know if, I, if I've ever heard um, an anticipation for a movie as much as this. I think they made more money, like, it hadn't even been showing yet um, before the movie's gone out. Then, um, But the anticipation, as, you, as you, we heard about that, there was the buildup. If we were to just step back and think for a second about the anticipation of the first coming of Christ and the eagerness and the expectation and then for Jesus to come. And so when, when I think of Christmas, I think of anticipation and the eagerness building up to Christmas, but I also think of something else. As I reflect on memories as a kid, um, once Christmas came, I couldn't wait to go see my friends. Anybody there with me? You guys know where I'm going? Because, like, I know Christmas is about Jesus. But as a little kid, it's like you've received these gifts, whether it's from your sister, your brother, your mom and dad, or your grandparents, and, and you just got to go tell somebody. Uh, you've got to go tell somebody about this gift that you've received. Not in an arrogant, prideful, ha ha la, check out what I got. But just in a, isn't this so cool? Like, this is awesome. And, and you want to go share that with somebody. So I think of, when I think of Christmas, I think of anticipation. And I also think of of experiencing joy and delight in something that overflows and wanting to go bring somebody into that joy. When we come to John chapter 4 today, we are going to see a dialogue between Jesus and primarily with a Samaritan woman, though his disciples also engage in this conversation. And we're going to see her encounter Jesus and leave to go back to her town with this same 
delight and joy as I think of Christmas to say, you guys have got to come and see and check out this Jesus guy that I just met. And so what I want us to see in the text today is that when you encounter Jesus, the natural outflowing ought to be exactly what this Samaritan woman did. And she went to her town and it says, she said, come and see this man. It changes everything. And so with that in view, let's turn to the text today and jump right in. I'm going to start in verse 1. And we're going to go all the way through verse 42 today. Though I'm not going to read it all at once. We're going to, we're going to break it up in, in sections and we'll talk about it along the way. So let me set the stage. We'll see in verse 1. Um, the stage is set for us to understand uh, the context of what's going on in God's word today. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Let me just pause here for a second. What we saw last week is, is this com- contrast between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say? Anybody remember our meta memo this week? John 3.30. But he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist was a pointer saying, look, I was just preparing the way for Jesus. Now, my role is to decrease and Jesus must increase. So it's natural here as we come to chapter 4 and we see here that Jesus and his ministry was continuing to increase and the Pharisees were taking note of that. And it says because of that, Jesus left and departed again for Galilee. And so in the mind of Jesus, most likely he's thinking here that the attention to his increasing ministry would have brought him, led to the potential that some might try to polarize the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. Additionally, Jesus knew his time had not yet come. There was still many things to do and say before he heads down that journey to the cross and then raises from the dead. And so in view of that, he says he departs to Galilee. And let's continue reading. We'll pick back up here in verse four. And it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I've got a map up here of the area for you guys to check out. Now, it's a little fuzzy and not very clear, but I think you can probably make out here. You see at the very bottom, Judea. At the very top, you've got Galilee where he was headed, and right in the middle, you've got Samaria. Now on the right, in the bottom right, you've got the Dead Sea, and the top right, you've got the Sea of Galilee, and connecting those was the Jordan River. Now Jesus was headed from Judea to Galilee, and to get there, the normal path would be to go right through Samaria. And you can see Sychar right there, in the middle, there, there's a, some dotted lines that basically do a straight line from Jerusalem up to Cana up there. And you can see Sikers right in the middle. That would have been the normal path headed to Samaria. But strict Jews would bypass Samaria and they would actually go along the east side of the Jordan River. You can see the path that it's actually going to the right to go around Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, you may be asking me, why is this significant? Well, if we jump ahead in the text, look at verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9 says this. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? And we get this side note, parenthetical side note by um, John, the author, who says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you were to go back and, and do a little history, you would see that in 722 BC, the Assyrians took over this area. They captured Samaria. Most of the Israelites were sent out, but the ones that remained intermarried with the Assyrians. Thus, the Jews viewed Samaritans, one, as children of political rebels, and two, racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. You guys follow me here? So they intermarried, so they're, they're, they're political rebels, they're children of political rebels, and they're racial half-breeds. Samaritans only held to the Pentateuch. It's the first five books in the Old Testament, and they didn't hold to the rest. And so the Jews did not have dealings with the Samaritans. And this is setting the context for us to understand this engagement here. You know, as you look at the map there and think about it, my Samaria today is New York City. And let me just explain. We're about to hop in a car and, and we're headed to North and South Carolina. But if any of you drive that way, you know that there, there's a city that you don't want to have anything to do with and it's New York City. So for me, my, like, my path, I will do whatever it takes to not go across the George Washington Bridge. Can I get an amen, anybody? Amen. You, some of you are there, you've experienced, like, hey, I'm not going there, so I'm going the Tappan Zee Bridge, even if it means I got to go miles out of the way because I will avoid at all costs the George Washington Bridge. That is potentially what could a strict Jew would have done around Samaria. And I'm not saying, if you're from New York City, I'm not saying, like, you're Samaria, like, just follow me there. Um, just trying to paint a vivid picture here for what potentially could have happened, but that's not what Jesus did. He went right through the middle of Samaria. And it says here in verse 5 that in this town called Sychar, there was a field that Jacob had given to his own son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. This location where this dialogue's about to happen is not just any location. It's a significant location in the history of Israel. You could go back to Genesis 48 and read the background about this field that Jacob had given to Joseph. And this well that was there is well attested to. It was, it was both a dugout well, but it was known as being fed by an underground spring. So this is setting the context, but there's two other pieces of information we find in verse 6 that I want to I clarify, and then we'll jump in to the dialogue with the Samaritan woman. Two other things. The first one says this, Jesus was wearied from his journey. Most likely, Jesus and his disciples departed um, at daybreak, let's say around 6 a.m. And it says here that this was the sixth hour. Most likely, that's around noon. So if they departed 6 a.m., they've been traveling for six hours. We're now in the middle of the day, and so it, it would be natural that Jesus would be wearied from this travel. Now, theologically, let's just reflect on this real quick. We learned in John 1, 14, it said this, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's one of the key texts for us to understand the incarnation. Jesus is both fully God and he's fully man. He, he had flesh. He was a human. So for him to be weary is just acknowledging here that he was human. And just like a human, he ate. And just like a human, he got tired as, as being the word become flesh. But there's more to the sixth hour here that I want you to reflect on. 
we're about to read here in a second about a woman who comes to the well and it's noon. History would tell us that the heat of the day is not when you would come to draw water. When would you come to draw water? The morning or the evening? And as we read through history, that's what it affirms. That, that most people would come in the morning or they would come in the evening. That's when the chore fetching water would have been done. Which leads us to ask this question. Why was the woman there at noon? You guys ever thought about that? Now what we're going to find out as we read through the text is that this woman was a notorious sinner. Jesus is going to refer to her five husbands and then another relationship she's in now that's not her husband. And that would have been well known in her community. Because of that sin, most likely she had received public shame, was looked down upon, and, and she probably came at noon because of that. She wanted to avoid conversations with others that knew this lifestyle, or either she was shunned and told, you don't come in the morning or evening, you can come at the heat of the day. Now, one other piece. This dialogue is coming right off the hills in chapter 3 of a dialogue that Jesus had with somebody else. Who did Jesus interact with in chapter 3? Nicodemus, right? And, and before we get into that dialogue with Nicodemus, it says in chapter 2 that Jesus knew the heart of man. He knows what, and so when we come to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is starting this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus just bluntly jumps in and says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Nicodemus didn't ask Jesus about being born again. Jesus initiates that because he saw into Nicodemus' heart, and he knew he needed to be born again. Now just think about Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. We might describe him as learned, powerful, and respected. Now contrast Nicodemus with the Samaritan woman, a notorious sinner, unschooled, little to no influence, and despised. Now here's what I want you to get. Listen to this. They both needed Jesus. Amen? Look, I, I don't know everybody in the room who's here today. But I do know this. The gospel is not for an elitist people. It is for the Nicodemuses and it is for the Samaritan. And so my prayer is that if, you, if this is the first time today that you've really heard the, the word of God in the gospel or if it's the hundredth time that you would hear it today as a word for you not as somebody sitting beside you or behind you or in front of you, but for you today. And so with that in mind, let's transition. This sets the stage for us to really understand this dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And, and as we look at this dialogue, there are just three truths that I think, man, that, are, that, are, that you can take home with you today that will propel you into a life honoring to God. And the first one is this. It's an invitation because I believe what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman is as if you're peering over her shoulder and he's speaking to you today. And the first one is this. Come, you thirsty, and drink from Jesus. Come, you thirsty, and drink from Jesus. Look here with me in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. John clarifies that for us. Why is Jesus here by himself at the well? Well, the disciples had gone to get food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you 
a Jew asked for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's interesting here. Look, Jesus knew exactly who this woman was, and he knew what her history was. We're going to find that later on in the text. But that's not where he starts out the conversation. He doesn't jump right in and say, hey, tell me about your five husbands. He just simply jumps in, and he says, what does he say here? Give me a drink. But by asking this, Jesus broke all of the rules of Jewish piety and could have even been accused of acting in a flirtatious matter, though we know the heart of Christ. That was not his intention. The point being, this, this dialogue with this woman could have been perceived, a Jew would have said, no way, you don't engage her. Because not only is she a woman, not only is she probably at the well at noon for a reason, That's not a good reason, but she could even make you unclean. And so that's why the Samaritan woman responds the way she does. She responds in amazement. You see that in verse 9? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She, She was well aware of the gulf between Jesus, a Jew, and her, a Samaritan. And she's probably thinking in her head, is he aware that even my water jar would have been considered unclean to fellow Jews? It's not like Jesus is saying, excuse me, can I get in here so I can get me a drink? He's saying, you, use your water jar and give me a drink. And notice how Jesus responds here. In verses 10 through 15. Man, there's some just gold here. So, man, as we read through these verses, God, I just pray that you would help us to see and to hear and and to embrace and believe these truths as they are being presented to the Samaritan woman and, and to us as well today. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, let's unpack this. Go back to verse 10. 10 kicks off this trajectory and this dialogue with with water and living water. And Jesus starts off by saying, if you knew the gift of God. We just looked a few weeks ago at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. We're gonna see this giving Throughout this text here, give, give, I will give you, I will give you. The gift of God most likely is referring to eternal life, the eternal life that only Jesus can give. And he continues on here, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This living water analogy is used by Jesus to allow two levels of meaning. One's pretty simple. On the surface... What is water? It refers to fresh running water from springs. The woman gets that, right? That's where she's thinking on this literal level. In such an area that would have had a dry and hot climate, she would have been cleanly aware 
of her need for physical water and of the blessings that come from it. I mean, just think about it. I know it's the middle of winter for us, though it doesn't really feel that cold. But in the the hot of summer, where it's dry, I mean, you can probably think of a time where you were just like, man, I would give anything for some water. Go there in your mind. Man, if I would just, man, just to quench my thirst, she would have gotten that. But there's another level that Jesus is speaking of, and he uses it metaphorically. And in the back of this living water analogy is a whole slew of Old Testament promises. So I don't have all the time today to unpack all of them, but I do want to point you to a few, and I think one is significant. Jeremiah chapter 2, I've got it on the screen here. And Jeremiah, prophet writing to Israel who would turn to idols and being the mouthpiece of God says this, They have forsaken me. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In, in, this, in the context of the Old Testament, the Jews had rejected the fresh and running supply of God and his goodness and then rather turned to idols described as broken cisterns that can hold no water with no ability to sustain life and blessing. You know what a cistern is? I don't have a picture up here for you, but it's a, a water container. And just picture this. It's cracked and broken. And so you're going to the well and you're filling up with water and, and you're going back and what's happening? It's just leaking out. Jeremiah uses this analogy to describe the idolatry of Israel. And it's the same for us today. You see, what Jesus is offering this woman is the fountain of living water which will forever quench our thirst. And what we do, just like the Samaritan, is that we've got broken cisterns. I don't know what it is for you. What is the broken cistern where you're going and, and you're, you're, you're drinking and you're continuing to go back to this well because you think it's going to satisfy you? And yet, the, if you would hear the word of God today, it says, your cistern's broke. If you keep going back to that well, any well that's not Christ, and it can be a good thing, but a good thing that becomes a great thing becomes a God thing, and that's a bad thing. You guys follow me there? Anything, even a good thing that becomes a God thing is a bad thing. And oftentimes, we go back to that well, we go back to that well, we go back to the well, and we don't realize we're drinking and drinking and drinking and just water. It's just leaking out of this cistern. And on the other side, you've got Jesus offering to the Samaritan woman and to you today fresh, living, forever water that you would come and drink and that you would be satisfied. So in this chapter, living water refers to the satisfying, eternal Life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah, and Savior of the world can provide. Did you get that? Living water, and this is quoting D.A. Carson, is the satisfying eternal life. That's what's being offered to the Samaritan, and that's what's being offered to, to you. Satisfying eternal life. It's not eternal life under this new, rescuing, forever king that is not good. It's, look, this is a good king. The Christmas promise, and to submit to the rule of Christ, is like, man, I, I gotta submit to his rules and all these things that he's telling me I should do or shouldn't do. No, he's leading you to life. The reason God tells you not to do something is because it doesn't lead to life. 
And the reason he tells you to do something is because that's what leads to life. To submit to his good reign is to be satisfied eternally, forever. And it is made available to us by the Spirit. We're going to see a few chapters. In John chapter 7, Jesus is going to clarify what he means here by this living water that becomes a spring welling up to eternal life. I got on the screen here in John 7. Jesus says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So that now, when you believe in Jesus, God pours out his Spirit to your heart. And that is how he satisfies you. Now look at the woman's response. Does she get it? No. In verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, um, you have nothing to draw water with. Thinking on this literal framework. And, hey, the well's pretty deep. So, like, how are you going to get down there if you don't have anything to draw from? And, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The irony of her response is that Jesus' living water doesn't come from an ordinary well. And yes, he is in fact so much greater than Jacob. Though she sees neither of these Yeah, so Jesus clarifies in verse 13 when he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Here's the reality. Physical water is good. We all need it for life. When you're in the middle of of a hot and dry climate and you're thirsty and you take a sip, you are refreshed, but it only quenches thirst for a short while. You guys follow me? The living water provided by Jesus quenches thirst forever. Look what he says here. Whoever drinks of the water, in verse 14, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That spirit that he pours out into us. I love what D.A. Carson, he says this, this thirst is met not by removing this aching desire, but by pouring out the spirit. And so this thirst, this longing, and look, you all have it. Every single one of us long and desire to be satisfied. What drives your decisions today is that you want satisfaction. What drives your decisions tonight and tomorrow and what you're doing on the TV and the, commu- and the computer and your smartphone, who you're hanging out with, whatever you're doing, you're driven by, this is going to satisfy me. You're all driven by it, non-believer and believer alike. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm kind of exploring just this Jesus thing or I just came with a friend, you're like, man, I'm not necessarily following Christ, you still pursue satisfaction. And in that Carson quote, he says, your thirst for satisfaction is met not by removing desire. It's by satisfying it. It's by pouring out his spirit into our hearts. Another Old Testament background, I'm sure that was ringing in Jesus' mind, is is from Isaiah 55. I want to read it. It's, It's on the screen here. It says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me here that your soul may live. Look, we all thirst and seek to fulfill our thirst through many broken cisterns. But Jesus came as the only one sent by God to satisfy the thirst of our deepest longings. Come and drink, everyone. I want to say to those of you that are exploring Christ, the invitation today is come and drink from Jesus. 
come and see him as the one who truly satisfies. And to those that are saying, man, I'm a follower of Christ. I want to plead with you. Man, it is so tempting, even in the Christian life, to, to run after idols and for good things to become God things. And you know what? Those are broken cisterns. And so the plea with you today is to crush your broken cisterns and come and drink from Jesus. It's not like God is saying, here's a little cup. It is a fountain of living water that will never run dry. That is the greatness of Christ. It's not like there's a little bit of satisfaction. It is complete, exhaustive satisfaction forever. Man, that's a great offer. You can't just add Jesus as another cistern in your life. That's not how it works. It's not like, yeah, hey, this is good news, man. I, I got all these other cisterns and I'll just, I'll just add Jesus to it. All these other idolatries and pursuits that'll satisfy me. I'll get a little Jesus and I'll get a little sex and I'll get a little money and I get a little whatever you want to go after. No, the invitation is none of those will satisfy, crush all of them, and Jesus is enough. Do you believe that Jesus is enough? That's what he was telling her. You come and drink, not from many streams, but from this stream, and it'll satisfy all of your longings. So Jesus, look at verse 15. We see her response. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Does she get it? No, she still doesn't get it. So Jesus has to lay bare her heart. So verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Hey, that's out of the blue, right? Hey, they, I thought we were talking about water. You want to go to marriage? And she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The reason Jesus addresses her sin is because she's failed to grasp the nature of living water. She must understood the true dimensions of her own need and the nature of her self-confessed thirst. She still doesn't get that she needs to come to Jesus to be satisfied. And so he makes it explicit. What you're running after, these five husbands... Jewish law would have only approved of three marriages. So let's just say that they were all justified or either they, their husband, her husbands died or either there was a legitimate divorce. They would have only, the Jewish law would have approved three. She's had five and then even beyond that, the guy that she's with now is not her husband. So she's in a sexually immoral relationship. Jesus is bringing to bear the cisterns that she's running after. He's saying, look, you're in these relationships because you think that they're going to satisfy. And you need to get that they will not. I have come for this very purpose to satisfy you. Jesus is seeking to make it clear for her and for all of us. Come and drink from me. I came for people like you. And you know what? Here's the encouraging news. Look, Jesus knew what was in her heart, and he already knows what's in every single one of our own hearts. Like For you today, what may be hindering you from coming to drink is that you've either got guilt or shame from these cisterns that you've been running after, the sin that you've been pursuing. Look, he already knows it. You're not hiding anything. You think you're hiding it. But it's so freeing when you can just come to him and this is the beauty of the gospel. You don't have to come and cover it up. You just come and say, you're right, man. This is what I've been pursuing and it hasn't satisfied and I'm ready for true satisfaction and I'm coming to you today, Jesus. The second truth. Come, you worshipers, and worship Jesus. Man, there's so much I could unpack here, but I'm, I'm gonna have to pick up my pace and start cruising a little bit. Uh, verse 19. The woman changes the conversation. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mount, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who was called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm sure the woman was hurt when he addressed her sin. But the cool thing is that she didn't cut the conversation off. She, as many of us do, when our sin's confronted, we, we probably don't want to keep going down that road. We'd rather divert and talk about, hey, let's get in a theological discussion because that's either than looking at that the own junk in my life. I would encourage you not to do that because anybody who comes to Jesus has to squarely face up with the mess in their life, with the sin in their life, not run from it. But we get on this conversation here about worship because she's avoiding discussion, discussing her immoral relationships the background here, real briefly, in this same spot, the Samaritans thought that on Mount Gerizim was the place of true worship, whereas Jesus said, no, the Jews said, no, it's in Jerusalem with the temple. And so you've got these two competing locations of worship. And she said, okay, Jesus, I perceive you're a prophet. You, you know what's going on in my life. Can you clarify this situation? And first of all, Jesus said, look, it doesn't even matter the location. He said, there's coming a time, you see here, verse 21, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Let's not get down debating that because it's not about location, it's about manner. But before we get to the manner, Jesus clarifies it even more. And he says here in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he's saying, Look, they had, they had only had the first five books of the Old Testament and had rejected the rest. The Jews had the whole uh, revelation of God, and so they were worshiping him according to truth. But he doesn't stop there. He, the third, as he goes on down, he says this, but the hour's coming when you must worship in spirit and in truth. Here's what was happening. We had just come in chapter two from Jesus clearing the temple and saying, you tear this temple down and I'll raise it up in three days. What we see in John is Jesus fulfilling all of the Old Testament imagery. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the temple. And here's the cool thing. If he's the Lamb of God and he's the temple, well, then you don't need to be in Jerusalem and you don't need to be in Mount Gerizim. Jesus is the location of worship. He's changing it all for everybody. And so if you're going to worship, you must worship in and through Jesus. And here's the other cool thing. If worship isn't tied to a location, well, then what we're doing today is not just simply worship. How many of you always say, man, I'm going to go to worship today? Or, hey, man, I'm looking forward to some praise and worship. Like We, we, we think of it either singing as worship or what we're doing as worship. Well, I hope this is worship. I hope the singing is worship, the reading is worship, the preaching is worship. We're going to collect an offering. We say giving is worship. But what you do Monday through Friday is worship. And here's the truth. You always worship. It's not like you say, man, I'm going to worship and then I'm not going to worship. The point here is true worship and false worship. And from the very beginning, God created you to worship, and he was, his desire was for global worship. Now, let me ask you this. If worship must be centered in Jerusalem, how is the gospel going to spread to the ends of the earth? But what Jesus is doing by making himself the location of worship is he's preparing the way for the nations to worship. You see, when we go to Toronto, Canada, or we go to India, or we send somebody like Elena to Delhi— we're not saying, hey, you've got to, to follow this Jesus, you've got to make this trek all the way to Jerusalem. No, we're saying through the Spirit of God and the truth of God and Jesus Christ, you can worship. So I would describe and summarize worship this way. New covenant worship is essentially the engagement with God that he has made possible through the revelation of himself in Jesus Christ 
and the life he's made available through the Holy Spirit. That's David Peterson in his great book on worship. It's engagement with God made possible through the revelation of himself in Jesus, and it's made available through the Holy Spirit. Worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're going to worship in truth, it's going to be according to what's been revealed in Jesus. And because God is spirit, location is now no longer important. It is the manner, and we do it by the Holy Spirit. These are the types of worshipers the Father is seeking. Let's continue with our third truth. So not only come, you thirsty, and drink, and come, you worshipers, and worship Jesus, but finally, come, you followers, and imitate Jesus' mission. Verse 27. And then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into a town, into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. First of all, why don't you see here? What does the woman do? It, we see progression in her understanding of Jesus. She was completely clueless at the beginning, but now we see her getting to who this Jesus is, and we see her leave her water jar. There may be symbolism here that she's leaving what she's been pursuing to come follow Jesus. And she goes to her town and says, come and see this man who told me everything that I ever did. And what do they do? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Man, I love this. And I wish we could spend more time unpacking it. But I just want to let these words sink in. Up to this point, have we even been told that Jesus took a sip of water yet? No, as far as we know, he never drank anything. I don't know. But it seems to be the disciples are urging him to eat. He asked for water, and I'm not convinced the Samaritan, maybe she did give him something to drink, but he's saying this, whether I eat or drink, here's what drives me in life. And you need to ask your question, where do you find strength and sustenance for life? In Jesus, it was the will of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And that's a great statement for a life. I mean, just to take that and say, this is my goal in life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my food is going to be to accomplish and do everything that God has sent me here to do. And then Jesus launches in on this dialogue about mission. Verse 35, do you not say... There yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the hills are white, the fields are white for the harvest because the Samaritans are on their way. They're coming. Look up. The harvest is now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sow and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and, and you have entered into their labor. Basically to summarize there's always sowing and there's always reaping as we think of mission. And they both serve a role and you rejoice together. And this should remind us that God gives the growth. So whether you sow and you're a faithful sower or, ever, or, or maybe you're the one reaping, we should all be re reminded that there's probably somebody who's gone before us who's been laboring in people. Jesus, this probably John the Baptist may have even been to the Samaritans here before Jesus, and he's reaping the work of maybe John the Baptist or even the Old Testament prophets of the work that's been done here. But I love 39 through 42, and we'll wrap up. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you guys get that? This is the punchline of the whole narrative. Jesus is the Savior of the world. 
And so we come and we drink. All you nations, come and drink. And we come and worship. All you nations, come and worship. And we imitate. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, what he's doing with a Samaritan woman is saying, there ought to be no barriers to anybody for the gospel. So let me just ask you, who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are the people that you are avoiding sharing the gospel with? Because the impetus of this text is there's nobody beyond the reach of God. And then I want to ask this, where is your town? And just like with Christmas, when you receive something good, and and as a kid I wanted to go tell my friends, I mean, you guys got to check this out. Is Jesus not good? That we would take the good news of the gospel and the promise of eternal satisfaction to go to our town, to our people, to our networks and say, you got to come check out this Jesus. And so the point of this sermon is that we would come and bring others to Jesus, the Savior of the world, for complete satisfaction and true worship. That we would imitate him and we would come bring others to him. That if you truly experience Jesus, that this ought to be flowing from our life. Let's pray. Father, man, I know there are a lot of heavy truths today. And I know many are wrestling with cisterns that they've been pursuing that don't satisfy. And God, we just pray, God, I pray that idols would be crushed idols of of people, of fear, of worry that hinder mission, idols of things that promise delight and joy and satisfaction but don't do it completely. God, I pray that you, by your spirit, work in a way that brings humility, that people don't, that, that, that confession of sin happens, that people feel free to not continue to hide in sin but to come to you and and admit it and confess it and to live in the light and to drink from the satisfaction that you bring through your spirit. And God, I pray you would make it clear in our minds the people that you place in our path that we can tell about Jesus. That if a Samaritan woman can truly experience Jesus and go tell, that that ought to be our disposition if we've truly experienced and believed that Jesus is the one who offers eternal satisfaction and true worship. So God, use us, work in us, I pray in Christ's name, amen.